for our Bible study. Uh, you have part four, a uh, little bit of a review. We saw that going into 1930 or so, that there were three distinct camps as we had before, uh, or, or going into the 1920s, we looked at last time and pushing on forward, Going into the 1920s, the three camps, um, with 1930, you have the American Lutheran Conference and the American Lutheran Church together, and so we saw these three groups. But once we were coming out of the 1920s, moving into the 1930s, we saw that though there were three groupings, those that were in within those groups were not homogeneous. We saw that there had been some changes, for sure. Yes, there was a synodical conference, and, and it was grouped together. We saw that after 1930, and uh, there were invitations that were going out uh, to the LCMS, to those in the synodical conference, uh, the American Lutheran Church was seeking fellowship with uh, Missouri. There were many... Uh, uh, questions that were going out. What we saw was that the Americanization of the church, the 1920s and into the 1930s, were brutal for confessional Lutheranism. You didn't see it completely on the surface, but within those groups, there was so much going on, and we saw that things were starting to bubble up. In response to a lot of these discussions and, and all, we saw one of the things that came forward, and I mentioned the 1932 brief statement, in which I said, primarily, this was really good in, in, in what it did. It was, it was pretty confessional, and, and it held it. Um, but it seemed to be uh, uh, the last of, of the old regime, the last of the old leaders saying, this is what we hold to, and they were saying that not so much in response to everyone else as they were trying to convince their old people not to break ranks, not to do something different. Um, we saw that, what Walter had taught, now we see his successor, uh, Franz Pieper, then um, reiterating many of the same things that, that came with it. Um, in regards to this, and, and we'll see as we go forward, what's going to be the response after this? Because you say, well, well, Pastor, if you say this is pretty good, this brief statement, how, how, come, how come you say that? Well, I'm going to show you why I'm, I'm saying that. Um, but before we go past that, your page that has part four on it, flip it over. Um, I include three of the articles that were found. Now, granted, as I said before, it's intended to be brief. It's intended to be, give us a paragraph that tells us about Scripture, justification, baptism, 
Um, we want something that we can use as a document to see if we agree doctrinally, and then we can establish fellowship with each other. Okay. Um, they took Franz uh, Pieper's writing. We'll get back to that at another point. But um, Holy Scriptures. As we mentioned before, one of the big issues that was a problem was how do you look at the Word of God? Is it the inspired and errant Word of God, or do we say that, I was explaining last time, that do we say, well, this contains the Word of God, so that you have to figure out which parts are God's Word and which parts aren't. Um, later we're going to get to this historical criticism um, in which you come out this book as if it is simply a human book, trying to, again, figure out, according to your reason, what you're going to take and accept. Um, that's what is raging. Prior to 1930, and with 1930, even with the ALC, they were able to say, the Holy Scriptures, we, you know, we're going to have it as inspired and an air word of God. Pretty well, everyone had that. But not everyone held to it. And from this point on, they're going to be bold enough to say, yeah, we don't believe that either. But this keeps it. And so you can see some of the issues going on. That's why I want to include this one. We teach that the Holy Scriptures differ from all other books in the world in that they are the Word of God. They are the Word of God because the holy men of God who wrote the Scriptures wrote only that which the Holy Ghost communicated to them by inspiration. We teach also that the verbal inspiration of the Scriptures is not a so-called theological deduction, but it is taught by direct statements of the Scriptures. And so they give those. Since the Holy Scriptures are the Word of God, it goes without saying they contain no errors or contradiction, but they are in all their parts and words the infallible truth. Also in those parts which teach of historical, geographical, and other secular matters. So we're not going to simply say, well, when it talks about salvation, that's true. But, but if it says some other historical thing, it, it, may, it may or may not be true. It, you know, it, it could have errors in those matters. No, nope. they're going to hold to it. Number two. We furthermore teach that the Holy Scripture, regarding the Holy Scriptures, that they are given by God to the Christian Church for the foundation of faith. Since the Scriptures are the sole source from which all doctrines proclaimed in the Christian Church must be taken. Therefore, too, the sole rule and norm by which all teachings and doctrines must be examined and judged. So, we're not going to go with this Christian knowledge, oh, I think that me and my sanctified mind ought to be able to judge, you know, just like the word, no. Along with the confession of our church, we also teach that the rule of faith, the analogy of the faith, according to which the Holy Scriptures are to be understood, are the clear passages of the Scripture themselves, which set forth the individual doctrines. So, the Word of God is going to tell us what the Word of God says. We don't have the Word of God and then some other authority, even my own sanctified reason or something like that, that is going to be uh, the interpreter. Lastly, three, we reject the doctrine which under the name of science 
has gained the wide popularity in the church of our day that Holy Scripture is not in all its parts the word of God, but in part the word of God and in part the word of man. And hence does, or at least might contain error. We reject this erroneous doctrine as horrible and blasphemous since it flatly contradicts Christ and his holy apostles, set up men as judges over the word of God, and thus overthrows the foundation of the Christian church and its faith. So, um, quite clearly, um, they hold this up regarding the scriptures and say, you know, we're, we're going, we're going to bolster this, which I'm going to say is going to be very helpful as the Synodical Conference, Missouri goes forward, um, and it's going to be uh, the rejection of this that's going to cause our Seminex breakup. But there's other things that happen when we get to that in the 70s. Will you say a little something about the totality of Scripture? I don't quite get that. Um... Did I jump over some? Okay. Um, the rule of faith is not the man-made so totality of Scripture. So, I, I, another way in which you, you go about this. So, if in one spot it says that homosexuality is, is wrong, but the totality of scri- Scripture describes the love that we ought to have, well, then the totality of Scripture would lead us to understand that as long as they're in committed relationships, then that would be okay. Okay, I got gotcha. you. You got gotcha. you. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah, th- there's there's all of these things that at least when you read it, it sounds okay. But when I explain it, you go, oh, that's really good. All right, so that gives you scripture. Any questions on that one? Well, the totality of scripture always covers up sin. It's never used in any other way than to cover up sin. I include the next one simply because we've talked about objective justification before, um, and the brief statement includes a section that quite clearly teaches it. Listen, Holy Scripture sums up all its teachings regarding the love of God to the world of sinners, regarding the salvation wrought by Christ, and regarding faith in Christ as the only way to obtain salvation in the article of justification. Fabulous. Next statement. Scripture teaches that God has already declared the whole world to be righteous in Christ. And it gives some passages. That therefore, not for the sake of their good works, but without the works of the law, by grace for Christ, that he justifies, that is, accounts as righteous, all those who believe in Christ, that is, believe, accept, and rely on the fact that for Christ's sake their sins are forgiven. So it starts off by saying, objectively, everybody's justified. That's wrong. And then it goes on to say, and therefore he justifies, and I guess they mean subjectively justifies by faith, and it quotes the scriptures again. Um, again, it's put in there. It's simply left the way it is. Um, the second sentence contradicts the first. It does. It doesn't seem to go together. Um, So, uh, I'm taking a look at something called the historical background of a brief statement um, in which it goes back and takes a look at uh, some other documents before. So, when 
uh, Franz Pieper uh, initially wrote this in in his own. It, it wasn't for any Senate. It was his his own in 1897. They modified it in 1922, and then this is included in the 1932 uh, brief statement, which was adopted by Missouri and, and, and changed. Interesting is this. The 1932 document adds the clause that God has already declared the whole world to be righteous in Christ. Romans 7, 2 Corinthians 5, Romans 4. If you cut that out, Scripture teaches that, not for the sake of every good works, but without the works of Christ, he justifies accounts righteous, all who believe in Christ. Without that phrase... There's no objective justification, and that's a beautiful statement. Yeah. That's what Franz Pieper wrote in 1897. Without that line. Without that line. Now, I, I, I will tell you that Franz Pieper wrote Christian Dogmatics, and it is thoroughly in there with objective justification. But it's fascinating, and I haven't ran this whole thing out, that in 1897... He just completely left it. It's not in there. It's not a part of it at all. And it's not until a little bit later, and especially when the Senate is going to bring it forth, um, that uh, it is it is included. So, um, you know, the idea that everyone has always taught this, and is, you know, it's just it's just not true. Okay. Um, so, I know you've done a lot of research on this, particularly, but. Was someone reading Hoover, or was this just lazy language, or where did they get this out of? I don't see, well, this is a little off topic, um, um, and you've read Hoover and, and whatever. Um, Bishop has traced back and showed that we already rejected this back at Luther's time with Hoover and, and, and all. I don't think at least I haven't seen the connection, between what was taught by H.A. Preuss in the Norwegian and what was taught by Walter in Missouri. I've not seen where they grabbed Hoover and said yes, or they read him and said yes. I think they're completely ignorant of him, and I think they stumbled into this themselves. Now, that's kind of crazy, but that's my... I can't prove it yet, but I, you know, I think they just stumbled into it. I think Hansa Freist came up with it to respond to something, and Walther said, yeah, sounds good. Um, again, some of this stuff wasn't necessarily printed at all. Um, lastly, uh, I also include the article on the church. Particularly, there's about three articles. This one is on church fellowship. Why do I include this? Because, as we've been going through, I showed you that back when uh, C.F.W. Walther, in 1866, wrote The True Visible Church on Earth, he gave a description of church fellowship, which includes doctrine and practice, and then you have fellowship. 
And then, on a couple times later, I showed you that later in 1897, when he wrote Law and Gospel, as he's talking to the seminarians, he teaches them doctrine and practice is the way that you establish fellowship. Now, when Franz Pieper, in the brief statement, explains the fellowship, he does it exactly the same way. Since God ordained that his word alone, without the admixture of human doctrine, be taught and believed in the Christian church, all Christians are required to discriminate between orthodox and heterodox church bodies. All right, what do we mean? Orthodox are, ortho is correct, doxology is kind of teaching. In other words, a church body that teaches things correctly and a church body that has truth and error. They may teach correctly that Jesus died for the sins of the world and then they may teach falsely that his body and blood is not present in the Lord's Supper. Truth and error are side by side. That's called heterodox, two unequal things that are kept together. It doesn't mean they have no truth. Okay. Um, also, someone was asking me about this, and and they said uh, um, that 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 one that that they knew somebody that that person was heterodox. And I go, well, normally we don't talk about a person being heterodox. We talk about a church body. But okay, so we are Christians are required to distinguish between true teaching churches and false teaching churches, orthodox and heterodox. To have fellowship only with the Orthodox Church bodies, and in case they have strayed into heterodox church bodies, to leave them. So, same thing that we've heard again and again and again, and the brief statement supports it. And what happens if an Orthodox Church body introduces false teaching and doesn't remove it? Romans 16, 17, that's the passage that says you flee from falsehood, you leave it. We repudiate, and then it goes on to talk about what is unionism. We repudiate it. That is, where there is church fellowship with the adherence of false doctrine, they say that is disobedience to God's command. So, uh, for someone who is teaching the truth, to have joint services, to have church fellowship, altar and pulpit fellowship with those who also hold the falsehood is disobedience to God's command. That is to lead them, to flee them. And it causes divisions in the church. Interesting. Usually we get accused of causing divisions because we flee from falsehood. They say, no, when you don't flee from falsehood, you're causing divisions. And it involves the constant danger of losing the word of God entirely. In other words, is this a big deal? Yes. yes. Okay. Really? <laughs> I don't have to there, do I? How do you determine the orthodox character of a church? It's not by its mere name. Oh, it's got the name Lutheran, and it, that makes it good. No. It's not by its outward acceptance and subscription to an orthodox creed. Although that needs to happen as well. But it's not just that. You don't just say, hey, we got some good documents. But by the doctrine which is actually taught in its pulpits, in its theological seminaries, in its publications. So, not only on paper, but in practice. On the other hand, a church body does not forfeit its orthodox character 
through the casual intrusion of errors, provided they are combated and eventually removed by means of doctrinal discipline. All right, so how are they explaining this? What they're saying is this. Of course, there are going to be false teaching arise within even Orthodox church bodies. It may be someone who is intentionally wanting to do this. It may be someone who stumbled into air. It may be whatever. You don't lose your Orthodox character as long as you combat it, remove it. Obviously, you teach against it in order to explain, hey, listen, this can't be allowed in our church and it needs to be removed. Um, uh, and so, it's only when that error is granted an equal footing and allowed to stay, then you become heterodox. So, um, it talks about this removing of it. This is, once again, if I hold those up, it's the same thing. This is 1932. And this is... You know, uh, um, one of the last clear uh, statements. <coughs> Questions? Under the obvious, if this was issued in 1932, and the only thing we really see uh, among these things that we would cross out would be that uh, justification. of justification. It's pretty How good. How on earth could they not hear you when you had these objections for, what, six years or something. I mean, there it is. Right. When, 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 when people said, to, oh, you can't leave. That's what, what you're our church has always taught. Um, you're right. And, and now they say you don't leave. Now they say, you know, so, uh, you know, my, my biggest grief is at this point is that within the Senate, you know, I expected the liberals to say, mm -hmm. oh yeah, we, we just right. whatever. No, it's the conservatives that now say, you don't leave, you stay. Conservatives of all stripes have gotten um, a little different. So that's, that's the issue. Okay, brief. Well, and I was going to say, I've heard them talk about it and excuse getting away with it by saying that they're combating it, but they never stop combating it and say this isn't acceptable and make it leave or leave themselves. Sure. It's just... just when the church governance becomes a democracy, you can't defeat it. Because you've got, right. you've got to say, okay, we're going to vote, majority wins. Well, that doesn't have anything to do with doctrine. Correct. And and so we've talked about, yes, how you know, that, that makes it a, a very difficult thing. They stick it as in a committee and they bury it and it never comes to the floor. That's what happened to all of our stuff. Um, I also will, as we go forward, when we talk about Seminex in the 70s, there is this myth that, you know, the, uh, the pastors were corrupt and the laymen saved us from error. Um, yeah, there is a distinction between the pastors and the people that put out the statements. I mean, they're the ones that write the statements. And what the people are being taught and heard and all. Um, but the people always get 
what the people, what the pastors preach. And so we'll we'll take a look at that myth before. Subjective justification statement still bothers me because uh, you know the, the the pastors in the church we're talking about we're not talking about a bunch of fools we're talking about very erudite men who can't see the 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 blatant contradiction between the first part of the statement and the second. I, I don't understand how anybody could look at that and not say, wait a minute, there's a problem here that needs to be addressed. And yet apparently nobody did. <coughs> Correct. I, I didn't that. And, I, and I'm not convinced that, that uh, even as that got, you know, included in this, um, you know, someone grabbed it and said, hey, listen, that's what we had before. Someone knew about the controversy. But um, I'm going to say similar today, you know, the, the universal kind of ignorance of it, misunderstand. It's just, it's never really dealt with. It just isn't. And in practice, it's not done. I, I don't want to go too far with that, but, yeah. you're, but you're right. And it's surprising. It's surprising. I think it's also important to, to, to point out here that when in those kinds of discussions, if your pastor's talking to you about those kinds of discussions, that, that that's good. But if he's not, the layperson in the church is going to have all sorts of opinions about that. That doesn't necessarily mean that the church body or even the congregation is heterodox. It means that it's made up of sinners. That's, that's simply the problem. We have sinners throughout the, the congregations and the churches and church bodies. And the fact of the matter is, even the leaders are sinners. 1930. ALC was formed. Iowa, Buffalo, Ohio, Norwegian finally goes into it. Granted, Missouri and Wells and ELS do not. With this uh, beginning, you might remember, Missouri was going, well, you know, your, your documents are pretty good. Your practice, mm, uh, yeah, we're kind of waiting to see. And then we remember the ALC kind of looking to the ULC, the United Lutheran Church, kind of going, yeah, your documents and your practice are kind of crazy. So um, they're rejecting them. But with 1930, they really would like to get together with the Synodical Conference. They really would like to continue this merge. Now, you might remember, we've got the American Lutheran Church, which is kind of these three and, and Norwegians later, but you have what's also called the American Lutheran Conference. They couldn't get everybody in. So they, they got them in the and then they have this conference where they're not in an organic union, but they're still in fellowship with each other, and so they're, they're looking. With this, they're looking towards the outside and saying, hey, can we get together? Following the 1930 merger, the American Lutheran Church turns towards the Norwegian and the Missouri Senate and said, hey, you know, and, and I'm going to say their real job is to convince Missouri that they're serious. That was what their job was to do. By 1938, the Synodical Conference was beginning to have disagreements 
that is, between Wisconsin, ELS, and Missouri, which were in a synodical conference. They were having altar and pulpit fellowship with each other, though they were separate church bodies. Up before 1930, there was a possibility they might all fold into one, you know, make them districts and all together, but it, it didn't work out. There were some things that went on. I talked about the Thamesville theses, but that's another point. But they start talking, and Missouri says, okay, we'll talk to you. Whoa. The other members of the Synodical Conference, Wisconsin and, and Evangelical Lutheran, both Norwegians, said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. What are you doing? Well, we're, we're talking to them about these agreements, uh, about maybe going into church fellowship. The Missouri Senate had put together a brief statement in 1932. The American Lutheran Church had put together, you might remember this declaration, sometimes it's called the Sandusky Declaration, um, and they looked at it and said, we think that our declaration agrees with your brief statement. We ought to get together. And Missouri said, okay, <laughs> let's start talking. Uh, as Missouri started talking with them, ELS and Wells said, well, uh, uh, are their documents any different? No, it's the same. Well, is their practice any different? Well, no, it's the same. So if before 1930 you wouldn't talk, you know, there was problems. If nothing's changed, why do you want to have negotiations with them? Well, we do. And as Missouri continued its negotiations with the LSC regarding uh, worship and uh, fellowship and doctrinal union, um, the synodical conference that Missouri was in fellowship with started to have rumblings and there was lots of disagreements and now accusations uh, concerning it. World War II hits, 1939, 1945. It didn't have as great an impact as World War I, but it did have an impact. Um, there wasn't as much um, uh, uh, cheering for, for Germany and things of that sort. There were the typical things like the World Convention, the National Lutheran Conference. There were these working together things that brought Lutherans together. And sometimes, well, they didn't think about what they were doing. And sometimes they did it intentionally. And there was a lot that was going on. By 1938 to 1950, they revived these free conferences in which you could come and talk without any fellowship or anything of that. It was simply individuals, um, and they were frequently done in order to see if we might come together in addition to some of these other uh, discussions between Missouri. These were opened up for everyone, and it was intersynodical, and, and there were those. Um, but 20s and 30s were brutal. Everything had changed. There was uh, uh, so much going on. Um, clearly, the Missouri Senate wanted to be Lutheran to spread the gospel, yet the loss of German and of historical texts on hermeneutics accomplished several changes, none of which were good. The first was the seismic change in the study of hermeneutics. The second was the feeling that the history of theology the historic theology of the LCMS no longer fit the times. Things have changed. Maybe theology needs to change, too. The Great Depression stalled everything um, and the momentum, but nevertheless, 
Missouri Senate between 1920 and 1960 doubled in size. That also created some issues. Um, engagement in national debate, still dealing with world kind of issues. Uh, the loss of German over into English. Um, yes. Ambiguity arose from the uncritical use of new terms to mean old ideas. <coughs> Rationalism, evangelical fundamentalism, drew the LCMS into an unnatural polarity. We were trying to decide. Well, we want to be, and maybe you've heard this before, well, we want we, we have an inerrant and inspired scripture just like the Reformed churches, right? You're just like the Methodists and Baptists. And the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but we're sacramental. And baptism and Lord's Supper, and we teach the Bible. Well, that's just like the Roman church. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so which am I? This polarity, and as we're talking with others, you know, I know you've had it happen. You know, I walk in and, and someone says, you know, oh, you're, you're just like the, like the Roman church. I go, well, the services are similar looking, and you know. And then I go somewhere, and I'm like, oh, yeah, you're just like the Bible, because you guys teach the Bible. And so it was with the Americanization, how are we going to, these, this polarity, cultural pressure, help the LCMS to explode. Um, in addition, we talked about the resource-hungry corporation, everything getting bigger. Um, the doubling in size between 1939 and 1920, dominant psychotherapeutic systems. What happened? Psychology came along. And guess what? All of the pastors went, well, we're not very well respected for teaching God's word, but if we have a little psychology and we start to counsel people, we can put up our counseling sign, and now people respect us. And so, after this point... Oh, you want to get married? We better go to the pastor for counseling. Counseling. Counseling? <laughs> you know, oh, you want me to teach the word of God? Oh, no, no. We're going to find out if you, you know, we're going to do personality profiles. We're going to find out if you're compatible. We're going to teach you how to teach men how to get in touch with their feelings. We're going to teach women how, you know, um, it's, it's psychology. So all of these things affected this uh, um, thing. And then, 1945, September 7th, in Chicago, there is a document called A Statement. It was signed by 44 Missouri Senate pastors. These are not inconsequential men. What had been under the surface for the very first time went full-blown public. What did this uh, a group of, of 44 Missouri Senates. They called for a greater measure of evangelical practice within the Senate. They called for a different definition uh, on fellowship, a definition which was at variance with the Senate. Again, I walked you through the three. They all agree. Not anymore. And a greater readiness to join other Lutherans. This document comes out. It creates um, huge controversy within Missouri. It's the beginning, and if you read through the document, 
It's speaking about how in this particular time, it's the time now that the time has come. We have got to, the emphasis being, you know, maybe at not another time, but this would, this is such a special time that we've got to do something. We've got to do something. And it's the matter of, it all has got to come from the heart. It's got to come from the love of God and love for neighbor. And we're so concerned about love and that has to be the basis of this. We cannot be legalistic dealing with the law. We've got to be gospel-centered church that is loving others. And we've got to be reaching out in mission. Mission is the word. And from this point on, mission is going to overtake everything that goes on. Um, this is, uh, it, it comes to full-blown, when I come into the uh, pastoral office, and, you know, I come in 1991, but in the 80s to the 90s, it's full-blown. Uh, you do everything for the thing of mission. Um, I could read you some of this, we could go through it, I'm, I'm trying to move quickly, I'm trying to, but watch. In 1947, the Missouri Senate in convention, that's when it speaks. Who speaks? That's when Missouri decides what do they think about what happened in 1945. It comes to the convention about this issue. What's going to happen? We want this. We don't want this. It is pandemonium. The synodical president brokers a deal in which he says, we will take this document, we will set up a committee and they will study these issues. The 44 men say, okay, we will withdraw our paper. Da, 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 da. Everything's fine. We're all good. Missouri Sun goes forward. No problems. Except they never finished studying. <laughs> there is a study. Um, it does come out later. But, so here's the issue. When someone presents false teaching, and they say, um, oh, never mind, it's what's the problem? There, it? it went underground. Did they say, I apologize? No. Did they return? No. It just... You caught me. <laughs> um, and at this point, it still was in Missouri, and it continued to go on. And, as a part of this A statement, was the false interpretation of Romans 16, 17, in which they said things like, oh, um, this, this term unionism, oh, that, that's never found in the scriptures of the Lutheran confessions, and there's not a real definition of it. And so, it, it varies. Um, and, and um, when it says to flee from falsehood, it, it doesn't mean that. It just means, like, real big issues. They did come out with another document a little bit later. The next ecumenical document that came out was called Common Consent. Um, it also was an attempt to secure fellowship with the ALC. Part 1 came out in 1950. It was generally good. It had some pretty classic Lutheran statements. Um, coming out of this committee that was put together. 
Part two, as things went on, ratified in 1955, adopted later, ALCL, ALC also thought it was pretty good. As a whole, it began to be used within Missouri for a while. In 1956, Missouri, again, 56, not long after 45, so in 11 years, they go, yeah, that's a significant historical statement, which is the next best thing to saying. Then you say, yeah, this is a theological statement that we all confess. However, the second part was in conflict with the first. The second part was a train wreck. The first part was pretty good, and they disagreed, so they put them together and said, that's what we'll use. Um, other members of the Synodical Conference also objected to this. So, because it was still around, you can see that the document, you know, if, you, if we'd only gone for one more document, you know, we would have fully lost the entire thing. Um, in 1949, the uh, United Lutheran Church didn't attend Missouri's free conferences. Uh, in 1950, the Augustana Senate, who was wanting fellowship with the ULCA, finally realized that wouldn't happen, so they tried to have fellowship with Missouri. Missouri said, yeah, I don't think so. In 1956, the UL, United Lutheran Church invited Missouri to be united with them. We're going to see next time that they all unite in 1960. But this is finally then. So about 1956 is when Missouri stopped its fellowship discussions with the ALC because the ALC is going into the big ALC and the United Lutheran Church is going into theirs. Um, ooh, I'm running out of time. Moving Frontiers. Um, the book by Carl S. Meyer. Um, I've been using it about half the time. I told you... You've got to read between the facts and things of that sort. Um, his book stops in 1964. So the last thing that he records is the Cleveland Convention of 1962. He describes this as a turning point. And at this point, you get to the last three pages of his book, and you, if you didn't pick up on it before, you realize where he is going. He says, aha, this is the proof that shows you the moving frontiers of doctrine within the Missouri Senate. We've been changing. All, it's never been. All of you people that think that doctrine remains the same, wow. Um, and so he talks about one, this, uh, there was a, he, he quotes from a guy who who writes on what happened in the Cleveland. This is what the guy writes. And he writes it in the Lutheran Witness. When it comes out, it, it's pretty controversial because it finally repudiated harshness and temperance. We need to act in harmony with synodical statements. We need to be loving towards others and, and quit being uh, um, uh, all that... All, true church, orthodox, heterodox, whatever. And guess what? We created, we created a commission on theology and church relations. They'll take care of all that messy stuff. Two, Herbert J. Bowman is the one that talks about unionism being an imported non-biblical term. Uh, we need to remove these distressing divisions in Christendom and all get together. And finally... Uh, Missouri leaves behind all their doctrine and goes on to social action. We need to talk about the social implications of the gospel. Um, this is the way he 
reports upon the convention of 1962. Um, you can see that, uh, uh, is this exactly what happened? Well, there's still a lot back and forth, but that he, this would come out and that there would be controversy concerning it lets you know that it is divided, at, by, at least by 1962. I'm, I'm looking at it somewhere in between 32 and, and on. Um, with it. Um, you know, I might be able to just hit this and I'll come back to it next time. What goes on? Talked about the Synodical Conference. I talked about those groups that were in uh, uh, fellowship together. Though they weren't uh, completely in the same, they were still having altar and pulpit fellowship with each other. The Synodical Conference starts complaining about what Missouri is doing. The last great thing that they talk about is the brief statement. Talk to Wisconsin, talk to ELS, talk to anyone that goes back. Those were the heydays when everything was great. And Missouri left a brief statement. If they, only they would continue to do that. Um, in 1955, the ELS suspends fellowship with the LCMS over their talking with ALC, and we're going to see what happens with the ALC next time. Finally, withdraws from the Synodical Conference in 1961. In 59 to 61, uh, the LCMS has consultations. I'm going to talk about the Lutheran Church USA. This is kind of an umbrella group that also was um, uh, having discussions. In 1961, Wells suspends fellowship with the LCMS and withdraws from the Synodical Conference finally in 1963. So, the two groups that were the allies of Missouri leaves them and says, no, 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 we're, we're, we're not united anymore because of the things that are going on. 1963, um, uh, they are in fellowship. Wells and ELS are in fellowship. They're still in fellowship with each other right now. Uh, interesting fact, the Church of the Lutheran Confessions, called the CLC, and they still exist, were formed in 1961 <laughs> by those who were in Wells and ELS who thought that fellowship should have been severed, not suspended, when the doctrinal differences were apparent. We'll come back to that. Finally, the end of the Synodical Conference is 67. So here's what happens. Um, ELS says, the stuff that you're doing uh, um, concerns us. We're going to suspend fellowship. And then finally, they leave. Wells sees what Missouri is doing with ALC and, and things of that and says, we're going to suspend fellowship. And then later, they finally leave. Some people in the CLC <laughs> say, yeah, you guys didn't leave quick enough. And because you didn't leave quick enough, we're going to go form our own Senate. So here's what we got. We've got <laughs> synodical... We've, we've got doctrinal fellowship, and Romans 16, 17 says you're supposed to flee from falsehood. And, and before that, we all did it. At some point along the way, as we saw here after the brief statement along the common consensus, they went, well, I don't know if that means exactly what you think it means. Maybe we don't flee from falsehood. Then you've got ELS and Wells going, no, no, we flee from falsehood. And then we got CLC saying, yeah, but you didn't flee quick enough. 
that's what fractures all of what's going on. This is, and, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about this next time as we kind of review and then push forward. But here's what's, uh, here's what's coming. 1960, ALC brings in more uh, synods and goes from the 1930 ALC to the 1960 ALC a little bit bigger. The United Lutheran Church um, has a 1962-63 Lutheran Church in America, and so we get the LCA, and they all go together. So 1960-62-3, two big groupings uh, that, that come together. And what about the third grouping of Lutherans? They break apart. They splinter apart with the Synodical Conference uh, uh, being dissolved. What happened? What's the next big event after 1960? Seminex 1970s. It's all leading up to the Seminex. Um, so we're going to take a look uh, um, and, and hopefully get into that with um, with Epstein. Questions. Let us pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, uh, you have told us that we are to hold to your word, and that is not an easy task. And so we ask, dear Lord, that you would provide us strength, uh, that we might uh, flee from falsehood and continue to hold to your truth. But in all these things, uh, we need your guidance, your strength, your direction. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.